right. Good day, David Power. We are here with Scramble for Africa, episode 12. Uh, the British in West Africa. But Dave, I have a few things I wanted to talk about that are pertinent to this to African history um, and also to this podcast. So first of all, I wanted to tell you about the story of a, one Professor Komarov, um, who is... Um, an old professor kind of from the old school of uh, African, you know, African studies. He's an Africanist, I suppose. So he's the, he's the leading expert on Africa at Harvard. Um, and, and he got accused of sexual harassment, um, you know, and kind of nasty stuff that he, you know, uh, is alleged to have done. Um, and, and it's, you know, what happened was a bunch of professors came to his defense. So they signed this open letter uh, in the Harvard Crimson. This is all happening at Harvard, in the Harvard Crimson. Um, and they said, you know, he's a great colleague and he's the best and, and we all support him. And then uh, a little bit more evidence came out and then they all retracted their letter. <laughs> So they wrote a letter. We retract. We are retracting our open letter published in the Harvard Crimson. Our concerns were tra- transparency process and university procedures, but we failed to impact the failed to appreciate the impact this would have on students, and we were lacking full information about the case uh, and so on. So they all retracted, and it's all these big names, including some big Africa uh, studies people. There's um, Carolyn Elkins, whose work we'll probably be using on decolonization. Um, she wrote one of the most important books on, um, I guess, on like the British concentration camps and the counterinsurgency in Kenya. We have Paul Farmer, who's a big uh, Haiti, you know, an important Haiti scholar, partners in health. Henry Louis Gates Jr., who studies uh, ancient Africa civilizations and has a documentary. Lots of big names uh, signed the letter supporting him and then <laughs> signed the letter <laughs> retracting their letter. <laughs> I'd say the lesson there is maybe maybe there's less of a hurry to sign the letter than you um, than you think there is. Look before you leap, maybe. <laughs> Look before you leap, um, and then uh, and then reviews. So I was uh, I'm on this I'm on this chart. Um, I'm not chart. I'm on a I'm on a mailing list that where the this guy tells you how to promote your podcast. So. I one of the things he says is to encourage uh, listeners to review your podcast. One thing you can do is read reviews of your podcast. So uh, a couple of uh, there's a couple on there now. There's not too many, but on chartable.com, you can read reviews. Here's one. Here's a very nice one. I've recent. It's from Marpog666 <laughs> in the United States of America. I've recently discovered this podcast and it's slowly becoming one of my favorites. I particularly love the Civilization episodes with David as it's incredibly entertaining and insightful. I look forward to future episodes and hope your audience grows because you put out amazing content. This was from a year ago, so they've had lots to listen to. Yep, here's another one. Lemon Cookie 85, US uh, back in April. I never thought a podcast would compete with hardcore history for my favorite history and politics podcast, but the Civilization series here is really doing it for me. Great stuff. Then we have Barnacle Goose, Great Britain, June, um, says, racist garbage, (laughs) anti-Western, anti-white, racist nonsense, stay clear. (laughs) Ouch, Barnacle Goose. (laughs) Well, he's half right. (laughs) 
and here's here's the other one. It, here's the other bad one. There's two bad ones. This one's from KK Zuba uh, in Australia, and it says, um, "Ignorant and non-factual. Listen to one episode. Was cringing and felt embarrassed for the host and guest as the amount of ignorance on the topic discussed and non-factual statements were way too numerous to accept as a slight slip up." Some listeners not familiar with the subject matter wouldn't pick up on the mistakes, which is even more worrying, as it might be taken as factual. I suggest the host and guests do some proper research and get their facts straight to avoid pontificating on issues through a prejudiced lens. Wishing them all the best in the future. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> well, they, they wished us well. Uh, yeah. <laughs> next one is Lizard K101. Uh, thought-provoking insight of history. Approach this podcast skeptical, but the host and co-host are well-informed, rational, and accounts for multiple views on historical events. Thought-provoking look at not just our recent past, but events that have massively influenced where we are today. This is what we're trying to do here. Thank you, Lizard K101. Um, two more. Uh, Lo- Loke said sister. Locked sister, maybe? Um, Great Britain. Uh, this is just from back in October. Thorough and well-researched, excellent history podcast, not anti-white, just anti-imperialism, which can never be a bad thing. Definitely worth listening to and expanding your knowledge. So thank you. Loxista was, I guess, defending us from uh, Lizard K. No, not Lizard K. Lizard from, I guess, KK Zuba. And the last one, um, this one is by someone who calls themselves more brains than money. Which you know, given <laughs> given this review, I'd have to agree. Um, I don't know your, the state of your finances, but I definitely agree with the first part. Um, the scrambling of Western Civ. I am drawn to this podcast particularly by the scramble for Africa segments and find them fascinating. Perspective is everything in history, and the hosts have upended the Western colonial perspective of my youthful studies, and with them, the prejudices and injustices that were previously presented as triumphs and progress. It is well-researched and produced, and the knowledge of each host is evident without much trace of personal biases or hubris. Keep up the great work. Thank you, more brains than money. So what'd you think of that exercise, Dave? Uh, encouraging. <laughs> yeah, I guess let's keep doing this then. <laughs> well, all right. So we were in um, we were in the British and West Africa. I, I have a lot on Benin, but I don't have much on much else. But you have you have done a thorough tour of the British West <clears throat> Africa. Um, I, I, I did look at a couple of books about the transition to colonialism and Nigeria and Sierra Leone by Paul Lovejoy, who actually worked or maybe even works at York, I think worked at York, mm-hmm. um, but it was mostly pre-scramble. So I, uh, I'm going to leave it to you and uh, over to you. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, we decided to approach British West Africa um, in a non-chronological matter. Rather than hopping about from place to place, uh, we, we thought we would look at uh, individual areas one at a time. And we worked our way counterclockwise around West Africa. And I also looked at the bigger picture, which is interesting as well. I mean, there are, there are more than, obviously, there's more than one colonial power in, in West Africa. Fra- France is the predominant colonial power in in West Africa. There there was the independent state of Liberia, although independence might be stretching it a, a little bit. The American yeah, Rodney protector. Rodney calls that basically an Ameri- the American colony in, in Africa. Yeah. 
Portugal and Spain are present. Germany's going to show up. Britain is clearly in second place in the scramble. You know, if you look at it like a game of Monopoly, they have the second most properties. What, what's interesting, though, is the French had a vision, uh, a strange one. It, it sort of rivals the, uh, the Rhodes, you know, Cape to Cairo idea. The French want to recreate the, the lost empire, I guess, based on Timbuktu. We'll, we'll get into this more when we discuss the French later on. But what's interesting is the British have no plan. There's no cohesive uh, thinking about this area. It it's all you know on a case by case basis. And and reacting, I guess, to what France is doing in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, or Germany. Or Germany. So back in the 1700s, Malachi Postlethwaite wrote about West Africa. He said it is melancholy to observe that a country which has near 10,000 miles of seacoast and noble large, deep rivers should yet have no navigation. Streams penetrating into the very center of the country, but no benefit to it. Innumerable people, without knowledge of each other, correspondence, or commerce. I didn't know rivers could be noble, but apparently they can. (laughs) I don't believe this guy. (laughs) I suspect these people did know a bit about each other. A bit, but he is pointing out something. It, it's a, a little bit akin to ancient Greece. There's not as much travel overland as you would think. Difficult country to travel through in many cases. So uh, he. So there I, is a degree of isol- like island island effect on communities. Right, there. right. Postlethwaite wrote uh, ten more books, including a translation of the French. Universal Dictionary of Trade and Commerce, uh, favorably reviewed by Adam Smith. Uh, he was pro-slavery, was pro-slavery, uh, in favor of expanding British opportunities in Africa, and surprise, surprise, a member of the Royal African Country. Oh, com- company, Royal Africa Company. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I thought we would start in Sierra Leone. Not sure if our listeners know this, but Sierra Leone was a British colony in West Africa, which quickly became the center of their anti-slavery efforts uh, as of 1807 when the slave trade was abolished. Abolitionists in Britain organized uh, Freetown, and this became the capital of British West Africa. The original idea was when we free slaves, when we capture slave traders and we free the slaves, sending them back to their original place of origin will simply result in them being enslaved again, most likely. So we will uh, basically dump them at Freetown and give them freedom and perhaps a, a shovel and maybe another tool. But that was the plan. This will be a place where we can resettle freed slaves. Yeah, and there was a big there's a big Canadian uh, footprint here in the sense that there was like a big um, flotilla or more than one that went from Nova Scotia after the uh, you know I guess the U.S. war. Um, I've I've read somewhere I think thirty five thousand uh, on the order of of that. Uh, went. That many? 
Yeah, I think so. I'll I'll I'll, I'll double check while you continue, but that's the that's the number that I okay. saw when I was reading. Well, I mean, the Americans thought the same thing, right? If we're not going to have slavery, what are we going to do with the former slaves? We don't want them to stay here. So maybe we can ship them back to Africa. And that's what Sierra Leone, Sierra Leone served that function for the British. They based a naval squadron there to intercept slave ships. And the colony grew very quickly. Uh, the, the freed slaves, the liberated Africans, were joined by... Um, West Indian and African soldiers who had fought for Britain, uh, either in the Napoleonic Wars, the War of 1812. And of course, these are all people that are new to Sierra Leone. And they became known collectively as Creoles. So the British and the Creoles gradually increased their control over the areas surrounding Freetown. And the British would step in militarily whenever they needed to uh, ensure peace and to make sure that commerce wouldn't be interrupted, obviously. It wasn't until 1895 that the British drew borders for Sierra Leone and declared it to be their protectorate. And of course, this is all sparked by the Berlin Conference and the, the rules for declaring ownership and all of that. And that's when armed resistance began in Sierra Leone because up till now, you know, if the British want to have a town on the coast and they want to base their fleet there and they're bringing trade, that's one thing. But to declare a protectorate and say, well, actually we own the whole shoot and match. We own everything. And of course, once they declared ownership, they decided to make the colony pay for itself. And that led to the hut tax. So rather than a poll tax, they base their tax on every every hut, <laughs> every dwelling. Yeah, this is uh, this is this is one of those stories that like really tells you what the scramble for Africa was about. You know, there's the there's the great civilizing mission uh, of bringing commerce and Christianity, but ultimately it's about like going from one hut to another and taking people's stuff. Yeah, um, the. I was able, I found a CBC article about like one, one journey of 1200 black loyalists in 1792. Oh, uh, but I, I don't know. I can't now, I can't seem to track down my, um, my 32, 35,000 number. So I'll have to, with, I'll have to retract it, <laughs> you know, what's the, in keeping in in keeping with the theme of this uh, episode. Yeah, I don't know the number either. What I remember reading about it, though, was that uh, quite a few of these resettled uh, Africans, uh, they were persuaded or given incentives to go. Mm -hmm. And then once they got there, uh, realized that the advertising had not been quite truthful. And many right. of them weren't too yeah, happy to huge. have been... To have been there's, thrown an, there. there's another story I'm seeing where when the British um, fought the Maroons in Jamaica, uh, they were tricked into signing a truce and rounded up and they were taken to Nova Scotia for four years and then taken um, and shipped to Sierra Leone. And that was part of the... Um, oh, okay. <laughs> that was another part of the thing was Jamaican Maroons who had 
Maroons being people who freed themselves and established an independent community in Jamaica. So involuntary resettlement. Yeah, like multiple times, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, in Sierra Leone in the 1890s, the governor was Colonel Frederick Cardew. And he decided that <clears throat> colonies had to pay for themselves. I don't know if this was a directive from London, but it was certainly an attitude shared by many British administrators. So since we have to make Sierra Leone pay for itself, then we have to impose taxation. So he decided that residents of Sierra Leone would pay a tax based on the size of their huts. Uh, this guy was not a professional administrator. He was a professional soldier who had served in India and South Africa. And basically by this decision, he showed his uh, pretty complete ignorance of the lives of most of the people of Sierra Leone. The, the tax was simply way too severe. I mean, I don't know that an administrator would have been better, but the tax was certainly out of all proportions. So if you had a four-room hut, you'd be taxed 10 shillings. And a smaller hut, five shillings. And again, like these taxes are also to force people to work, right? This is a strategy for, that's been yes. going on for a long time where you you can't, um, if people can grow their own food and kind of take care of themselves on the land, then you can't really get them to work. So you go there and you, you make them pay taxes in cash, which means they have to go and work for cash. Um, so cash and taxes are part of a way of forcing people to do your bidding basically yeah although in Carter's case it might have it might have been more ignorance than design apparently no one on his staff told him that the taxes he was imposing were often higher than the value of the dwellings <laughs> and they also taxed unoccupied dwellings and then Cardu decided that the chiefs uh, had to organize the residents of their own villages to maintain the roads, which were important to the British, but maybe not as important to the local people. Uh, and nobody told him again that the people he was assigning to road labor uh, were basically subsistence farmers. You know, which takes all of your time. So every day you pull them off the land to work on your roads is going to lead to food shortages, possible starvation, disease. It's awesome so, that they're doing all this to uh, stop slavery. I just think that's really... And to bring civilization, don't that's forget That's really, really great. Yeah, so 24 chiefs got together and signed a petition uh, to the colonial governor explaining why the requirements were... Uh, too burdensome and, and a threat to their societies. In addition, the chiefs asked, like, by what right are you doing this? This is an attack on our sovereignty. Uh, the answer from the administrators being uh, unsatisfactory, I suppose. This led to the hut tax war of 1898. So there were two rebellions simultaneously. One in the northern area led by a fellow named Bai Bure who had some military experience and became a general, and another one in the southern area led by Momo Ja. Uh, oh, wait, so this is basically over no taxation without representation, so I assume the Americans came quickly to the support of the these rebels, right? 
There's no record of that. Maybe <laughs> maybe they were behind the scenes. Military advisors. Supplying Sorry. weapons. Sorry, please can please continue. <laughs> so the British uh, issued a warrant to arrest Baibure. He was a uh, 61-year-old chief. Their idea was that a display of force would be all that was necessary to convince the natives to pay their taxes. Uh, that backfired. By February of 1898, they had open warfare, and the resistance was spreading. Baibure seems to have been a fairly reasonable fellow. I think he knew that they weren't going to win a war, but he was using you know, a military stance in order to make peace overtures. So Cardu rejected these. He was apparently an early proponent of unconditional surrender. Baibure got some support. Uh, prominent chiefs sent him warriors and weapons and defended himself. So when the district commissioner, a Captain Sharp, uh, attacked him, Burr's fighters uh, fought back. And even though the British were better armed, there were high casualties on both sides. And Governor Cardew got frustrated. He realized that a display of force was not going to be enough and that small-scale warfare was not as easily winnable as he'd thought. So he adopted a well, a style of warfare that I could only describe as Kitchenarian. Can I make that word? I think so. You're talking about what Kitchener did in Sudan? Uh, actually, what he did in South Africa as well. The scorched earth mm-hmm. policy. Right. So the British went and burned entire villages. They burned the farmlands. They burned the pastures. And uh, this worked. Baibure, you know, didn't have enough provisions to feed his warriors and certainly not enough to feed the people. And I think he kind of saw the end game and realized, yeah. we, you know. Hey, we were there? I, I, actually, now I think I remember this because the because this is around the same time, right? As the British, I mean, the Americans in the Philippines. So this is one of those times when the Americans and American humanitarians and and British humanitarians are just slinging accusations across the Atlantic and. They're both right, and neither of them look at what their own country is doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In any case, uh, Baibure, just to save his people from more damage to their property, he finally gave up the fight. He surrendered himself November 11, 1898. And the British government recommended uh, lenience, but the governor didn't feel that way, so he had Baibure and some of his colleagues sent into exile uh, in the Gold Coast, present-day Ghana. 96 of Baibure's supporters were uh, convicted and hanged, and Baibure was only allowed to return in 1905. He gave an account of his side of the the hut tax war to, uh, I guess, a missionary, Reverend Allen, uh, and Allen sent an account, Baibure's account, to Governor Cardew, but it seems like to have gone missing. A lot of historians didn't consult this uh, source. Yeah, why would you? Why would you want to know what the opposing commander thought of and of a war that you just fought? Yep. Yep. The the Southern Revolt, uh, mainly led by the Mende tribe and a few uh, allies from the Sherbro. Um, 
and they seem to have been very antagonistic to the Creole and and the the civil servants that were working with the British. So they they killed quite a few uh, Creoles. And the British commander, Lieutenant Colonel Marshall, he wrote that operations involved some of the most stubborn fighting that had been seen in West Africa. Now, of course, most of this fighting is being carried out by black soldiers, right? The West India Regiment, uh, African troops with British officers. But it was still one of the larger West African colonial campaigns of the 19th century. And it took them a, a, quite an effort to finally defeat the hut tax rebels resistance but that was the end of large-scale organized opposition to the British in Sierra Leone after that you know there was some dissent there were attempts to reform uh, and many of their problems British problems actually became the Creoles seeking political rights or or forming trade unions against their colonial employers so yeah it's interesting that it's called the Hut Tax War and not, you know, the Temne War or, you know, the Temne Mende War, because they call them things like the Ashanti War and the, the yes. Zulu Wars, but they don't give these guys the that much, I guess, respect to call it. They call it over, they name it the issue, but instead of the people they were they were fighting. Yeah, but I don't, I don't mind the name that much. It, it's basically quite clear that this is, the British started this, yeah, that's true. That's true. You know, and it's it's their fault that there's a conflict, but of course. <laughs> of course. Um so, you know, I I I had a note here on forced labor just uh, I think this is from Rodney uh, where he writes, taking only one example from the British colony of Sierra Leone, one finds that the railway which started at the end of the 19th century required forced labor from thousands of peasants driven from the villages. The hard work in appalling conditions led to the death of a large number of those engaged in work on the railway. And just to say, like, the idea again, just just to remind everyone that this is all being done as a as an abolitionist initiative, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you're you're gonna start on the Gambi- the Gambia. I remember um, Brad, my friend Brad, I think visited the the Gambia, and he said something like, you know, I went to the Gambia and I was like, Oh, you went to Gambia. And he was like, the Gambia. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It was called that because it's it's really just both sides of, of the river Gambia. But I, before just, if you're, if you're listening to this anywhere near a computer or a console or whatever, I would invite you to look up a map of, of Gambia and just see like, I, I don't know too many countries that are, that have this kind of map. It looks like, it's a piece of of food inside of Senegal's mouth. Like, like it's surrounded on all sides. Its northern border is with Senegal. Its southern border is with Senegal. Its eastern yep. border is with Senegal. <laughs> it's quite a quite a unique uh, territorial formation. So, yeah, it uh, is unusual looking. I I don't know that you know Gambians would appreciate being thought of as a piece of food in Senegal's <laughs> teeth, but. The image is <clears throat> pretty accurate. So this was part of the Mali Empire, and then in the 16th century, they became part of the Songhai Emperor, Empire. The Portuguese arrived around 1445. They tried to settle, but not very successfully. Uh, yet a few of them remained, uh, intermarried, 
and maintained uh, some Portuguese customs, uh, Portuguese uh, dress, and professed to be Christian. And the name Gambia actually is simply a corruption of the Portuguese word for trade, cambio. So if you're old enough to remember yeah. money changing offices, the change, yeah, 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 the 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 word cambio. So Gambia from that. The English showed up in the late 1500s looking to trade. Uh, n- again, not particularly successful. They came back in the uh, 17th century because they thought that the Gambia was a river of secret trade and riches concealed by the Portuguese. Some kind of El Dorado complex about, you know, the mountain of gold at the end of the Gambia River. The French tried to settle. Uh, Their settlement collapsed because of disease. The English came back, tried again in 1618 to 21. They were hoping to reach fabled Timbuktu, but their expedition took huge losses. Again, disease, but they were also massacred by Portuguese settlers. Uh, And the British relief expedition under Richard Jobson arrived. Uh, He was offered slaves by an African merchant and refused. Jobson said, we are a people who do not deal in such commodities. Neither do we buy or sell one another or any that hath our own shapes. This is, uh, he's no, he's no, what's that guy's name? Drake? He's yeah. no, uh, he's no what Drake. What an unusual fellow, Richard Jobson. Uh, of course, his expedition lost money, about $5,000. <laughs> so uh, he wasn't invited to, to return. There was an English expedition under uh, Cromwell in 1651, and there, the, the settlement that they put up was captured by royalists in the English Civil War. Then an unusual uh, colonial power, Courland, the Duchy of Courland, present-day Lithuania, and back in the 1600s, a vassal of Poland. And I guess the Duke of Courland wanted to get into the colonial market so he sent an expedition they sent up forts and outposts and i don't know if he lost interest i don't know why but they sold the whole operation to the dutch east india company in 1659 the dutch fort was captured and plundered by a french privateer in the service of sweden taken over by corland a year later and then finally taken over by the English Royal Adventurers in Africa Company, later on the Royal African Company. So an awful lot of changes of ownership of the post at the mouth of the Gambia. This would be uh, James Fort, it was finally called. Now, since the French are in neighboring Senegal, that means for the next century and a half, the French and English are going to be at war most of the time, and they're going to take turns capturing each other's fort. So James Fort was captured four times. I think they might have tried to improve it a little bit. In 1713, by the Treaty of Utrecht, uh, this is the end of the War of the Spanish Succession, British rights for James Fort and the mouth of the Gambia were recognized. Royal African Company, though, was having financial problems by 1766 they were taken over as a crown colony. 
So now the British government is in control. That doesn't stop the wars with France, though. In 1779, this is the uh, the American Revolutionary War. The French sent an expedition to capture and destroy James Fort, and by 1783, it was abandoned. But somebody remembered, because in 1815, the British came back to the Gambia and reclaimed it. It wasn't important enough to be considered a separate colony. It was administered from Sierra Leone by the military or naval officer in charge of the place. There was a, a, a thought given to giving Gambia back to France, you know, since it's surrounded by Senegal anyway. Even in the late 1800s, there was thought of giving it or trading it to France. But that led to a protest from the few settlers in Gambia and, of course, colonial merchants in England. So they decided to stay. <clears throat> and this led to a series of small wars with the native chiefs on either side of the river and a series of treaties and your usual protectorate treaties that were not fully understood leading to the cession of small tracts of territory and then finally the British declaring a protectorate in 1894 and then right. turning it into a colony in 1901 right on schedule <laughs> I guess. yeah yeah so continuing down the coast of west africa in a counterclockwise direction we reach the gold coast which we covered in an earlier episode only because uh, we skipped the ivory coast because that's france right yeah right i'm just going to the british colonies uh, we covered the first Anglo-Ashanti War from 1823 to 1831 when Governor McCarthy of Sierra Leone was defeated and killed in 1824. So at the conclusion of that war, the London Committee of Merchants chose a certain Captain George McLean to become president of a local council of merchants. He didn't have much in the way of formal jurisdiction. He's just like head of the British Chamber of Commerce on the coast of, of Ghana, or the future Ghana. But he got busy really early, so he helped arrange a, a peace treaty with the Ashanti in 1831. He supervised the coastal people uh, by holding a regular court in Cape Coast, where he actually punished people found guilty of disturbing the peace. And for the next 13 years, there were no confrontations with the Ashanti, and the volume of trade began to increase, apparently a 300% increase during those years. So McLean would have been very popular with uh, his merchant bosses back in, in London, or the merchants that he was uh, acting for on the coast. And he was good enough that a parliamentary committee recommended that the British government could permanently administer the trade posts and negotiate treaties with the coastal chiefs that would define relations between them based on what McLean had done. So in 1843, that's what they did. They reinstated crown government on the Gold Coast and chose a, a governor separate from Sierra Leone. And the first governor was Commander H. Worsley Hill. 
so what he did is take up uh, McLean's job and those coastal tribes or coastal peoples that had voluntarily uh, come to the British for protection, he began to define the conditions of the relationship, the responsibilities, his jurisdiction, and he made a treaty known as the Bond of 1844 with a number of the Fante. These are the coastal uh, tribes and local chiefs. So by this Bond of 1844, local chiefs, local leaders, were obliged to submit serious crimes to British jurisdiction by serious murder, robbery. So this is the, the legal foundation for what the British you know, did later, which is take, take over the area. So many of the, of the states along the coast signed the bond, and then they began signing up other states further inland. So British influence is uh, spreading being accepted and of course the local peoples are expecting in return they're going to be protected so this period is called the informal protectorate and as this happened that's why they made the Gold Coast a separate colony officially in 1850 and in 1852 the local chiefs and elders met at Cape Coast Castle to consult with the governor and this became a permanent fixture it's it's like a legislative assembly but without any specific constitutional authority it's just a, a meeting that became regular and became part of the unwritten constitution if you like which i think something like this was going on in some of the south african colonies right like some kind of assemblies that they try to get I think those were more more formal, though. More this formal. one seems to have just kind of grown into it from what right. McLean and, and Hill started doing. Just It's like an instant tradition, you know? Right, right. But, of course, the expansion of British influence and the promise of protection is going to lead them into conflict with the Ashanti again. So there was an Ashanti an opponent of the Ashanti named Kwesi Guiana, and he fled towards the coast looking for British protection from the overlord that he had rebelled against. So the Ashanti crossed the border, which was the Pra River, uh, in pursuit of him. British uh, troops, well, okay, African and Indian troops fighting for the British, responded to this crossing of the border and, you know, said we have to protect, you know, the chiefs that we have under our protectorate. So this is the second Anglo-Ashanti War. Uh, it started in 1863. It ended in a stalemate in 1864 because apparently more casualties were caused by illness than by any actual fighting. I don't know if this led the British government to take the next step, but they made the British Gold Coast a formal colony in 1867. In 1872, the Dutch finally left. They left El their base at Elmina Castle. Uh, they sold it to the, the British. And this changes things for the Ashanti because for years they've considered the Dutch as their allies, having fought with the British a couple of times. 
the Dutch were their trade partners. They had a treaty with the Dutch, and by Ashanti understanding, that meant that Elmina belonged to them and that they had just rented it or leased it to the Dutch. So when the Dutch sold it to the British, this is a breach of contract and theft. So in 1873, this sets off the third Anglo-Ashanti war when the Ashanti invade the coast in order to assert their long-standing claim to Elmina. They had some early successes, but the British eventually gathered about 2,500 troops plus several thousand West Indian and African troops, including many of the, the coastal people. And guess who was in command? Oh, no. Yeah, your favorite, Garnet Wolseley. <laughs> oh, Honestly, God. the guy was everywhere. So this war, I find this war fascinating because uh, it was covered by a war correspondent, Henry Morton Stanley, one of his jobs before he went off exploring and killing and mm -hmm. signing treaties and so on. But it was also covered by another correspondent named G.A. Henty. I don't know how many of our listeners are old enough to remember books for boys. These are some very old uh, books intended for British children meant to, I guess, infuse them with the proper imperial manly military spirit. So it was all about, you know, wars and colonial adventurers and making heroes out of anybody in a pith helmet. Um, I've seen a few of them, and they're, well, I, I don't know if at the time they were considered a, a bad, they were probably considered a great influence, but now they look. Yeah, of course, good. the virtues, yeah, turning young boys into heroes, but I definitely have not heard of books for boys. Well, imagine a like a, an illustrated comic book version of Kipling. Yeah, I mean, we we, uh, we it hasn't changed very much, right? I mean, we just have more sophisticated versions of these things now. Marvel. Yeah, movies now. Yeah, video games. Yeah. It's also an interesting war in that military and medical instructions were printed for the troops. This might have been one of the first British armies that was actually literate. So they could be given written instructions on how to care for you know, their health in, in this climate. I wonder how much of a difference that made. I don't know. I just see it as kind of a turning point. Literate soldiers, who'd have thunk it? Mm -hmm. And it's also an interesting war because of the free trade argument. So there were British arms manufacturers who were supplying the British army, but who were also selling arms to the Ashanti. And the British government someone appealed to them to, to say stop these guys selling weapons to the enemy and the British government thought it over and thought well free trade really is the most important thing here we don't want to interfere with British commerce <clears throat> so the bullets being fired at British soldiers were provided by British arms manufacturers yeah I mean this is an interesting one because there were um, you will see in Benin uh, when we get there, that there were some deals made at the 
kind of pan-European level not to supply African uh, states with. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. maybe this this may have played into that. Well, this is 10 years before the, the Berlin Conference. Right, so exactly. The, yeah. the scramble per se so has not have, actually begun. They must have not liked how this went and thought of trying to do something about it, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm sure they learned a lesson from this one. It took them a few years to figure it out, though. So the British uh, built a road as they advanced in order to move their troops. They built a telegraph line, and they built fortified camps every 10 miles. So there were skirmishes and then a battle on the 31st of January, 1874 at Amoaful. And apparently the Ashanti were shocked by a bayonet charge. Personally, I think it was the fact that the troops attacking them were uh, Scottish Highlanders and it was the bagpipes that terror terrified them. I mean, bagpipes are scary enough as it is, but when you've never heard them before. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of these, they say that even artillery in a lot of cases is scarier because of the sound of the explosion than the, than the actual damage that it does. Right. So there was Some another small battle two days later. The British lost three killed, 165 wounded. Uh, one of their African troops killed and 29, 29 wounded. I say this just because these were always reported separately. So instead of saying we lost four killed, we lost three British soldiers killed, one African killed. And they also reported officer casualties separately as if they were, uh, you know, a different Right? race yeah i guess. i mean <laughs> this is the highlight heyday of racism right so and and the classism right yeah. an officer killed is a tragedy right 11 soldiers killed is just a statistic yeah. so the ashanti retreated they actually abandoned their capital kumasi and the british arrived and i think you can guess what happened then they demolished the royal palace with explosives. They left Kumasi a heap of smoldering ruins. They, while they did these acts of vandalism, though, they were impressed by the size of the palace and the scope of its contents, including rows of books in many languages, which they destroyed. Story we've heard in quite a few places now. Quite a quite a way to treat a civilizing mission. I, fa fascinating, though, that you can be impressed by the place as you are vandalizing and destroying it. Yeah, I mean, for me, the yeah, the summer palace Beijing. Yeah, is, that's the classic yeah. example. This led to the Treaty of Fomena in July 1874. So the Ashanti king, King Kofi Karikari had to promise to pay the sum of 50,000 ounces of gold as an indemnity for the expenses he has occasioned to Her Majesty the Queen of England by the late war. The treaty also required that the Ashanti end human sacrifice, that they accept free trade between Kumasi and the coast, and the King of Ashanti had to guarantee that the road from Kumasi to the River Pra shall always be kept open. They also had to renounce their claims, obviously, to southern territories and particularly to Elmina. And this is the, the point from which Ashanti power in 
Ghana and the Gold Coast begins to steadily decline. They had a confederation of allies, but that begins to disintegrate as the subject territories break away. Some of them, you know, defect to the British and get protection from them instead. And that's the way it went until the scramble really began. And, you know, by the late 1880s, early 1890s, it's on. And the French and Germans are expanding and the British want to make darn sure that Ashanti does not end up, you know, appealing to the French or Germans for protection. So they want to establish their own protectorate over the Ashanti kingdom. So they made an offer in 1891 to the, the new king, King Prempe, uh, but he refused to surrender his sovereignty. They offered again in 1894, and the Ashanti king, sent a delegation to London. He offered concessions on the gold trade, cocoa and rubber. He even offered to submit to the crown as long as they left him, you know, as a semi-independent ruler. But the British had already decided on a military solution. So while the Africa, while the Ashanti envoys were arriving in London, British troops were already on their way. And the Ashanti delegation, I think, got back to Kumasi a couple of days before the invasion began. So this was the fourth Anglo-Ashanti War, started in 1895. And what was different this time was the British arrived with uh, Maxim guns. These are machine guns with 75 millimeter artillery and in overwhelming numbers. There was no, no fighting because the king wisely ordered his warriors not to resist. The British lost 18 uh, dead to disease. Interesting little note, one of the dead was Victoria's son-in-law, Prince Henry of Battenberg. I guess he didn't read the medical instructions. Oh, but About, he would have, they would have definitely known how to read. Yeah, it doesn't mean he did. <laughs> so apparently half of the troops that the British sent got sick. So no fighting, 18 dead, half the army indisposed, and a glorious victory. King Prempe was arrested. Uh, he refused to pay an indemnity. Sounds like a reasonable guy. Like, why, why yeah. would I pay for your invasion of my country? So he was deposed and exiled to the Seychelles. One thing that I find interesting about this is how successfully the Europeans managed to negotiate not to help um, African, you know, states against resist. You know, they, they really managed to, despite their rivalry, they seem to have managed to really um, agree not to kind of take sides against each other. Oh, yeah. yeah. In, that, in that sense, they're very much like the owners of modern uh, sports professional sports franchises mm -hmm. we're going to collude to make sure that uh you know we we maintain the salary cap the way we've organized it that we uh, silence troublemakers uh, yeah so there's like a, a real you know you it looks like these incredibly violent wars but then there's they're only enabled by a, a real a really solid peace deal between the europeans that they agree that they're only going to fight 
Africans and they're not going to help the Africans fight fight them. Oh, absolutely. Gentlemen's agreement. Yeah. Yeah. And this war, they even went out of their way to justify it. So Major Robert Baden-Powell, uh, we met him in the Boer War. He was defending uh, Maffa King and founding the Boy Scouts at the same time. But he was involved in this expedition and he justified the war. It was to put an end to human sacrifice. It was to put a stop to slave trading and raiding. It was to ensure peace and security for neighboring tribes, to settle the country and protect the development of trade, and to get paid up the balance of the war indemnity from the last war. <laughs> and he argued we were right to send overwhelming force because if a smaller force had been sent, there would have been bloodshed. It's striking the the way they combine, you know, really noble sounding with really, uh, what's the opposite of noble? Really sordid sounding uh, <laughs> yes. pretext. Like yep. We wanted to get paid and, and we also wanted to end the scourge of slavery for all time. And also, uh, you know, get to cut taxes from villagers. Yeah. I just thought it was interesting that it was Baden-Powell making the... Uh making yeah, the case small world <laughs> that's not the end of wars on the gold coast there was a fifth anglo-ashanti war in 1900 this was known as the war of the golden stool so the ashanti king didn't have a throne but he did have a golden stool and obviously it was not just symbolic but sacred to the ashanti so in 1900, British representative Sir Frederick Mitchell Hodgson decided that he was going to sit on the golden stool. I don't know if he understood that this is the royal throne and that it's my sacred. source. My source thinks it was a provocation. So what he, I he read knew is and that did it, it was, anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So the Ashanti hid it. So he ordered a search to be made for it. So you now have Mitchell's uh, Mitchell Hodgson's. Uh, underlings rooting around looking for the golden throne and this uh, enraged the Ashanti and they attacked the soldiers involved in the search. So Hodgson and his entourage retreated to a stockade. He had um, I think eight Englishmen, uh, several dozen African administrators and he had 500 uh, African soldiers, uh, houses from Nigeria they had six cannon and four machine guns, but they're now under siege. And the Ashanti cut the telegraph lines. And the mm, queen mother moves. of Ejisu, whose name was Ya Asantewa, so she's an, uh, an ally of the Ashanti, a member of their, their confederation, she now organized a rebellion. The British sent two relief expeditions, neither of which arrived. Hodgson somehow managed to escape. Like he snuck out on his own and got away. And they finally signed a peace treaty in 1902, 1st of January, 1902. And the first article of the peace treaty was that the golden stool would not be violated by British or other non-Akan, uh, non-Ashanti non foreigners. So the Ashanti claimed uh, a victory because they, you know, they had preserved their sacred stool. But 
the British, you know, retaliated by sending out columns of soldiers to visit neighboring peoples who had supported the rebellion and paying them back for it. British and their allies suffered over a thousand casualties, sorry, a thousand fatalities, and Ashanti casualties are estimated to have been around 2,000. For a small war, it's a pretty big war. Well, more fighting than the previous one. And of course, fighting primarily done by Africans against other Africans. So here's another quote. Again, I think... I think it's I think all these quotes are Rodney. Um the most important force in the conquest of West African colonies by the British was the West African Frontier Force, the soldiers being Africans and the officers English. In 1894 it was joined by the West African Regiment, formed to suppress the so-called hut tax war in Sierra Leone, which was the expression of widespread resistance against the imposition of colonial rule. In East and Central Africa, as we've heard, um, the King's African Rifles was the unit which tapped African uh, power on behalf, uh, African fighting power on behalf of Britain. The African regiments supplemented the metropolitan military apparatus in several ways. Firstly, they were used as emergency forces to put down nationalist uprisings in the various colonies. Secondly, they were used to fight other Europeans inside Africa later during the First and Second World Wars. And thirdly, they were carried to European battlefields or to theaters of war outside Africa. Mm. So this all happened, I guess, in the aftermath of these wars, eventually. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, the result of this last war with the Ashanti was the extension of the British Protectorate to the north of Ghana and basically full control of all the areas that had been controlled by the Ashanti. So the Gold Coast will eventually become Ghana. And once again, we're moving, uh, again, counterclockwise around West Africa to Nigeria, the British colony of Nigeria. Before 1500, most of the states in Nigeria, because there were several, it was not a single country nor a single kingdom, most of the states there were based on ethnic groups. So you had the kingdom of Enri, uh, of the Igbo people, the kingdom of Benin, and this is not the modern country of Benin. The kingdom of Benin was in Nigeria. You had the Yoruba city-states, including the kingdom of Ife. You had the Hausa states and the Igala kingdom. And Nigeria also wasn't uh, like a sealed border. Most of northern Nigeria paid homage to the Songhai Empire or to Borno, a a rival empire uh, further east. And the Hausa states were sometimes united, most often not. Uh, By the 16th century, most were Muslim, and they were being attacked by the Fulani. These are also Muslim, but uh, holy warriors, jihadists, who began expanding from 1804 to 1808. But they themselves were then incorporated into the Sokoto Caliphate. So my point here is that you have multiple independent states, 
competing and fighting with each other, uh, some Muslims, some not. So when the Europeans arrive, this is just perfect for a type of business that we've seen before, and that would be the slave trade. So the slave trade started a little later in Nigeria. Obviously, the, the, the slave trade took off on the western side of Africa, or the western side of West Africa, if you wish. And if you look at Nigeria's location, they, they got to it eventually. In 1650, about 3,000 slaves were being taken off the coast of Nigeria every year. By 1690, 20,000. And the peak was 1700 to 1850, a 150-year peak, with an average, uh, the stats I have are from 1783 to 1792, an average of 76,000 people taken off the coast every year. Yeah, I mean, it's it's huge. Uh, by the way, I mean, Nig- we should say, so first of all, again, like if you look at a map, Nigeria, it's kind of like if Af- if you see Africa as like a bird, you know, with a wing and like West Africa is like the wing and Nigeria is kind of like on the corner between the body and the wing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess uh, <laughs> Fanon said that Africa was like the shape of a of a pistol, and then uh, <laughs> I guess Nigeria would be somewhere near the the, the trigger. The trigger. Okay, Fanon said Congo was the trigger. But, um, ah, okay. Uh, okay. But Nigeria is also the big country. I I assume this was the case back then as well. But like yes. Nigeria has immense population. Uh, you know, big big portion of uh africa's population is actually in nigeria it's uh 200 today it's 214 million i think it's the most populous country in in uh, africa uh so just wanted to kind of give some context in terms of we're we're kind of talking about the big maybe the biggest african country i think it's got more people even than south africa i think so i think so let me look that up of course, at the time, it was by Europeans. Oh, yeah, way more. South Africa, sorry, is 60 million. So, And I think Congo is in that neighborhood as well, DRC. Okay. Yeah, surprisingly uh, dense population. Europeans didn't call it Nigeria yet. They called it the Bight of Benin. And then it became known as the Slave Coast as opposed to the Gold Coast or the Ivory Coast, you know, based on the uh, resource to be gathered there. So there were major ports. Uh, WIDA was one of them, W-H-Y-D-A-H, which is now in the Republic of Benin. Uh, Lagos, from 1790 to 1807, was the biggest base for British slave traders uh, and, and supplying between 1,000 and 2,000 slaves a year, just Lagos alone. Uh, Going back a little bit, of course, the Portuguese arrived first, uh, began trading in the Bight of Biafra. They had major ports at uh, Old Calabar, at Bonny, and at New Calabar. In 1740, the British moved in and became very quickly the number one slave traders in this area as well. 
they had a dispute <clears throat> in 1767 with the locals in Calabar. So the crews of six British slave ships intervened in a dispute in uh, Calabar, the old town and the new town. So they, they invited one side of the dispute, the Africans involved, invited them aboard their ships and massacred them. 400 men uh, killed. So that nice trick of inviting them under a flag of truce for a peaceful meeting and then turning and slaughtering them. By 1815, the British and French were out of the slave trading business. Well, officially, anyway. And the British were <clears throat> lobbying other European powers to stop the slave trade as well. And then they made anti-slavery treaties with West African powers and then enforced them militarily. And some of the treaties contained prohibitions on diplomacy conducted without British permission. So we've signed a treaty with this African ruler and included an article saying that he cannot carry on diplomacy with other European powers without British permission. And sometimes they tried to sneak in a clause where that ruler would promise to abide by British rules. And they weren't all fools. There's a chief in Bonnie in 1860 who uh, explained that he refused a British treaty because they induce chiefs to sign a treaty whose meaning they don't understand and then seize the country. So they're catching well, on. Well, that about sums it up, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, they're catching on. Uh, oh. Missionaries arrived in the 1840s. Church of England, the Church Missionary Society, other Protestant denominations came from Britain, from Canada, from the United States. And in the 1860s, Roman Catholic uh, missions were established. Now, the Protestants tended to divide the country into uh, little spheres of influence or, or spheres of activity to avoid competition with each other. Uh, the Catholics were particularly active among the Igbo. The Church Missionary Society, which were Anglican, worked among the Yoruba. They originally promoted uh, Africans to responsible positions in the missions. Dave, I have a intellectual problem with this. Okay. If they want to save souls and they believe their religion is the right one, mm -hmm. should they be so keen to... Sh shouldn't they be willing to fight for the souls of the people rather than just divide them up and let a whole bunch of people follow a wrong religion? You're thinking like a monopolist. What we want mm. to do here is increase our market share. <laughs> right, right. Right. So if we save 10% more souls this year. Right. Right. You know, you're right. God, God, God is happy probably with that. You're uh, right. Once we show him the account books and the ledgers, I'm sure he'll be very pleased that we've Fair increased enough. our business by, you know, X amount. Fair enough. You've resolved my, you've resolved my <laughs> issue. <laughs> Please yeah, continue. You think like a monopolist. <laughs> Consider free trade and, and healthy competition. Um, I was going to say, though, that the, the Anglican missionaries originally were pretty open to promoting Africans. So Samuel Ajayi Crowther was the first Anglican bishop of the Niger. And he was a, a former slave, a Yoruba liberated slave. He'd been educated in Sierra Leone and Britain. 
and then came back to his homeland with the first group of Anglican missionaries. Um, that didn't last, of course, but it was an interesting, I thought an interesting detail. Uh, is, is he the first one in Africa anywhere? I, Possibly, right? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I don't but know. it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been. Well, one of the first bishops for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, Justin and I have both been fairly honest about the suppression of the slave trade. In fact, Justin's made it quite a point that this was pretty bogus. But in the case of Nigeria, it looks like real efforts were made. Between 1807 and 1860, the West Africa Squadron seized around 1,600 ships involved in the slave trade. Uh, there's the case of HMS Comus. This is the first British warship that apparently sailed up the Calabar River as far as uh, Aqua Aqua in 1815. And boats from that ship captured seven Portuguese and Spanish slavers carrying some 550 slaves who I imagine were relocated to Sierra Leone. Right there, yeah, <clears throat> on the... It's on the way. I just, uh, you know, when I think about these these noble slaveholding campaign, I mean, slave ab- abolition campaigns, I just wonder, did they compensate the slaveholders um, when they when they were divesting <laughs> them of their slaves, or was that just the British slave slave? I would I would guess there was no compensation. Oh, well. Anyway. Well, there are plenty more examples uh, of uh, British ships capturing slavers, uh, you know, dates, names of ships, number of slaves freed. So <coughs> I agree 100%. <clears throat> this is an excuse that they're using to, you know, uh, get their foot in the door and keep it there. But they did at least some of the naval officers were conscientious about trying to suppress the slave trade. But having, you know, it made the slave trade illegal, the British are now looking for legitimate trade opportunities. And in Nigeria, that means palm oil and palm kernels. In Europe, uh, palm oil was used to make soap and lubricants for machinery. Uh, at this stage, petroleum's not being used. So you don't have petroleum-based lubricating oils. The trade of palm oil got to be very significant. By 1840, uh, exports of palm oil were worth about 1 billion pounds sterling. And this trade was concentrated near the coast. There were palm trees in abundance. You could also use palm oil for cooking. The kernels were a source of food. Uh, palm trees were tapped for palm wine. The fronds were used for building material. So they found, in Nigeria anyway, a pretty darn lucrative legitimate trade. And some of the <clears throat> Nigerian peoples you know, made the adjustment. So the Igbo, for example, 
began transporting palm oil to the rivers and streams leading to the Niger Delta so that they could sell them to European merchants. And this arrived at, after the 1830s anyway, this happened at precisely the time that the slave trade was, you know, in free fall and, and effectively collapsing. So the Igbo in particular just, you know, instead of selling their slaves, put them to work in the palm oil economy or used them to grow uh, the staple food crop, uh, yams. And from 1815 to 1840, the palm oil business just exploded from 800 tons a year to 20,000 tons a year. So while the Portuguese and Spanish and others were still continuing the trade for slaves, the British were making the palm oil business a, a going concern. It's a big business in Colombia today, I think. Palm, Palma Africana, it's, it's called. Is it? Huge plantations, yeah. Okay. Colombia. So this, of course, is a, a, a switch for Nigeria and, and for parts of West Africa that also you know, joined in on this. You're switching from uh, subsistence farming to palm oil as a cash crop. And the good news is that in the short term, you're going to make a lot of money and then you can afford to buy British exports, especially British cotton goods from their textile mills, Industrial Revolution, and so on. Yeah, so so this is the business <coughs> model that's basically continued to this day. Uh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Nobody, kinda, I, nobody guess, I guess it's pioneered in India, you know, always tested and tried in India, the, the commodity, commodity production. But that of. would only be like certain parts of India, right? There's no way that... Yeah. <clears throat> the collapse of one part, one, one yeah. commodity is going to affect all of India. But in the case yeah. of right. uh, West Africa or Nigeria in particular, you know, yeah. the palm oil is absolutely wonderful the now. Monoculture, yeah. But if anything, it happens to it in the future. Yeah. Yeah. So there's now a period where British merchants... Uh, they feel that they are facing risks in trading in Nigeria. They believe that they are at the mercy of the coastal rulers and they consider these rulers to be unpredictable. So as the volume of trade is increasing, so there are increasing numbers of requests from British merchants that the government appoint uh, a consul, a British consul uh, in the area. So in 1849, John Beecraft was accredited as consul for the Bight of Benin and the Bight of Biafra. So he is going to be the British representative for a jurisdiction that stretches from Dahomey to Cameroon. <clears throat> He's also the British representative to Fernando Poe, the uh, base for the Royal Navy squadron in charge of suppression of the slave trade. He doesn't really have any authority over any of the Africans in Nigeria, but when he sets up a court of equity at Bonny to deal with trade disputes, and then a second one in 1856 at Calabar, uh, he's going to begin dispensing justice and you don't want to be on the wrong side of that justice so he made a, an agreement with 
local traders, the EFIC, to prohibit them from interfering with British merchants. And that's going to lead to trouble later on. You can almost see these things coming, right? Yeah, it's a. I mean, especially since we've seen them, <coughs> seen it elsewhere. Yeah, so many times. Nigeria was also the site of Mungo Park's uh, expedition. So, in 1794, Scottish explorer Mungo Park was looking for the headwaters of the Niger River. Uh, followed it as far as he could go. <clears throat> he went inland from another direction the following year. He went from the Gambia River and came cross-continent looking for, I guess, the source of the, the Niger. He did find out that the Niger flowed eastward, but he had to turn back when all of his equipment was <laughs> stolen by uh, Arab slave traders. <laughs> In 1805, he went on another expedition, this one sponsored by the British government, and he was going to follow the Niger to the sea and chart its course. And that mission failed as well, but they did cover more than 1,500 kilometers. They passed through the Sokoto Caliphate, and then the expedition failed because their boats overturned in the rapids and they were drowned. Unceremonious. But he did attract, you know, new attention to the area. So there was another Scottish explorer, Hugh Clapperton. Wait, so you're saying Mungo died there? Yeah. Oh, shit. (laughs) Well, he was, yeah, but he was pretty famous. He's almost like an early uh, Livingstone. Livingstone, yeah. Yeah. And this is so far pre, like this is almost 100 years pre-scramble, right? So, yeah. Mungo's basically just a geography nut. I mean, from what I've seen. I, I might be wrong. He might know that he's, yeah, he's no Henry Morton Stanley. The whole racial ideology is not in the same kind of shape in 1794 as it is during the scramble, right? It's a, yeah. It's a different kind of animal by then. But he's not signing these, you know, protectorate treaties and, and like, yeah, them. exactly. Yeah. So anyway, another sp- Scottish explorer, Hugh Clapperton, uh, learned about the mouth of the uh, Niger River on his expedition to the Sokoto Caliphate, but he died before he could confirm it. I think he had malaria, depression, and dysentery all at the same time. Uh, I would think having, yeah, having two of those would lead to the depression. Yeah. 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 But his servant, Richard Lander, and Lander's brother, John, they survived, and they were the ones that demonstrated that the Niger flowed into the sea. Uh, they weren't very lucky either. They were they were seized by slave traders and uh, sold down the river to uh, a waiting European ship. I guess they were equal opportunity uh, slavers. So the but point... the Europeans didn't buy them, did they? Yeah. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I don't know how they got out of it later, but it was some time before they got free so that they could confirm what their expedition had found so the point of these little stories is that uh, exploration of the upper reaches of Nigeria were significantly hampered by uh, malaria uh, by the climate which was difficult and uh, of course the uh, hostility of the people who were being explored in the 1850s though they had found uh, quinine to combat malaria And thanks to that, another merchant explorer, 
from Liverpool, McGregor Laird, uh, opened the river. And he was uh, helped by detailed reports from another explorer, a German explorer, Heinrich Barth, who traveled through Borno and the Sokoto Caliphate and recorded a lot of information about the geography of the region, the economy, uh, the inhabitants. So there's more knowledge of Nigeria. It is more accessible thanks to uh, Queening. So the early efforts that all seem to end in death and failure, it's now not quite so dangerous. And then in 1851, opportunity knocks. So whether the British intended to take over Nigeria in, at this period is dubious, but they certainly did not hesitate when op opportunity came knocking. So it's an old, old story. The king of Lagos, Akintoye, was deposed. He didn't like being deposed by his own people, so he went to the British and asked their help in restoring him to his throne. Beecroft agreed on condition that Akintoye uh, abolish the slave trade and give British merchants a monopoly in commodities. So, in November of 1851, the Royal Navy bombarded Lagos, uh, kicked out the new king, Oba Kosoko, and reinstalled Akintoye, uh, who was thereafter expected to be more amenable to British interests. Ten years later, they annexed Lagos as a crown colony, a treaty of cession, and the way that they got this treaty was Akintoye's successor, Dosunmu, uh, spelled Dosemo in British documents, but it's Dosunmu. Uh, they threatened to bombard Lagos again unless he ceded Lagos Island to Britain. So they allowed him to remain a king subject to English laws, and they took over uh, the island of Lagos. I think we, I, I, I think in the episode on Benin or, you know, when I get to Benin, I think I, I think I have some details on who the Admiral was and stuff like that. Oh, okay. Because, yeah, he, they got around these, this, this Navy squadron. Mm. Uh, yeah. So further inland, this is a period of the Yoruba Wars. They were divided against each other. They were also facing threats from Dahomey, from the Sokoto Caliphate. And the British imposed peace settlements because, you know, your warfare is interrupting trade. So they basically forced or, or, or pushed the Yoruba into a peace settlement and then started relying on them to carry out their, you know, trade business and began employing some of them in official capacities uh, in business. And then they set up a legislative council in Lagos, a bit on the model of uh, Ghana. And uh, Africans were represented there at an appointed assembly, if you wish. They, weren't, they certainly weren't elected. And Captain John Glover, the colony's administrator, created a militia in 1861, mainly of Hausa troops. And this became the Lagos Constabulary and subsequently the Nigerian police force. Well, this is interesting that this is happening 
in 1860s mm-hmm. um, because I don't even think they're doing this kind of thing in India because in India the mo- the in the indirect model is relying on existing princes and uh, nobles right to mm-hmm. collect on your behalf but here they're actually creating native bodies to provide some kind of legitimacy or help them govern uh, and they're putting them in in place and kind of guaranteeing them there's a whole theory about this right that you're going to talk about indirect rule So what happens during the scramble? Oh, yeah. After the Berlin Conference, uh, Britain decides, okay, well, we can turn our foothold on the coast into a full protectorate. So they announced the formation of the Oil Rivers Protectorate, the Niger Delta, uh, eastward to Calabar. Then they redesignated it the Niger Coast Protectorate and expanded it to include... Uh, Lagos and the hinterland and northward up the Niger River as far as uh, Lokoja, the headquarters of the Royal Niger Company. And then they started signing treaties with local leaders, uh, granting them broad sovereign power. So there's one treaty from 1885, and it goes like this. We, the undersigned kings and chiefs, with the view to the bettering of the condition of our country and people, do this day cede to the National Africa Company Limited, their heirs and assigns forever, the whole of our territory. We also give the said National African Company Limited full power to settle all native disputes arising from any cause whatever, and we pledge ourselves not to enter into any war with other tribes without the sanction of the said National Africa Company Limited. We also understand that the said National African Company Limited have full power to mine, farm, and build in any portion of our territory. We bind ourselves not to have any intercourse, uh, that's discussion, conversation, with any strangers or foreigners, except through the company, and we give the company full power to exclude all other strangers and foreigners from our territory at their discretion. Because we wouldn't want foreigners to have undue influence in Africa. Exactly. (laughs) The company bind themselves to protect the said king and chiefs from the attacks of any neighboring tribes. Well, in order to protect these chiefs that you've now signed up and had you know, basically hand over everything to you, uh, you're going to need some armed forces. So the Royal Niger Company had its own army. They had a river fleet, uh, which they used for uh, attacking uncooperative villages or for retaliatory attacks on villages that raided somebody under their protection. So there were a series of military campaigns to enlarge the British sphere of influence, to expand the business opportunities and of course most of the fighting was done by Hausa soldiers who were perfectly happy to fight against other ethnic groups uh, especially since they were armed with superior British weapons Uh, so superior weapons and tactics and the political unity of the British you know whereas the Nigerian groups were all you know divided and had been divided for centuries and had been fighting each other 
So those are the, those are the reasons given for, you know, ultimate British victory. 1892, British forces set out to fight the Ijebu Kingdom, which were Yoruba people. Uh, they had some weapons, but basically they were wiped out by Maxim guns, machine guns. Uh, after 16 years of civil war, the rest of Yoruba land was uh, quickly conquered. And by 1893, most of them recognized that signing another treaty with the British uh, was kind of a practical necessity. But this new treaty explicitly linked, joined them to the protectorate of Lagos. So the British are now taking all of these pieces of territory and putting them into one Sticking them together, yeah. One bundle. So one one of the books I was reading, the uh, the historian in question said, British imperialism became more aggressive with the arrival <laughs> of Joseph Chamberlain as colonial secretary in 1895. So apparently wasn't one of were... our East wasn't one of our East Africa books say something like Britain cast off its anti imperialism of the previous yeah, yeah, century? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, Joseph Chamberlain, uh, fascinating history. This is the father of Austin and Neville Chamberlain. He was a radical liberal uh, at first, uh, cabinet minister under Gladstone. But he and a few others basically split the liberal party uh, on the issue of home rule for Ireland. Gladstone was trying to pass it and Chamberlain was bitterly against so he split off with his own group and became a liberal unionist and eventually ended up serving uh, again as a cabinet minister in coalition with the conservatives. So in those days, uh, you know, changing parties was uh, still being done and you could do it on an, an issue or on principle. But he was definitely uh, pro aggressive imperialism this is the same guy who knew about the jameson raid in advance and etc etc in 1896 97 the niger coast protectorate well the the, the company basically fought with the uh, remains of the edo empire they they were actually defeated <laughs> But that led to just a larger retaliatory force that captured Benin City and drove the king of Benin, uh, Ovan Ramwen, into exile. I guess you have more on that later. Yeah, I'm going to go in great detail about that. Oh, okay. uh, and I think I think it'll be the next episode. I think we'll just do it as a standalone because um, I think we I think you should go on and talk about Lugard and so on. And oh, then, our friend Lugard. That'll that'll set it up. That'll set us up nicely. For the, for the so our our listeners might remember Colonel Frederick Lugard as a soldier of force of fortune in Southeast Africa, uh, in in lands owned by the Sultan of Zanzibar. Not very successful. Uh, then he moved on to uh, Kenya and Uganda, uh, with mixed results. I think that's fair. He wasn't, you know. Incredibly yeah, successful. but what he really did was he was a big campaigner for retention, right? He was a big retentionist uh, yes. as far as East Africa goes. So that's yeah. where he made his name was more like, we should really keep this colony. <laughs> we 
rather than what he did on the ground. So by 1897, the British government realized, okay, there's a, a lot of fighting going on and to be done, yet to be done, in Nigeria in particular. So they created the Royal West African Frontier Force. And they found Colonel Frederick Lugard would be an excellent choice as commander. So Lugard set about recruiting uh, troops. He recruited about 2,600 men, uh, evenly split between Hausa and Yoruba soldiers, although the sources are pretty clear that Lugard seems to prefer, seem to have preferred a majority of Hausa. The officers were British, so African soldiers, British officers. And uh, you know what's interesting is the operations of the RWAFF are still not fully known because many of the documents are still secret. <laughs> I have a friend who does research here, um, and she went to the archives in Britain. Kew Gardens. I guess, I guess in London, yeah. She told me the story in a lot of detail, and she imitated the archivist and everything. <laughs> but basically, she she went in to get documents on this kind of area and this this time. And, uh, and the archivist showed her where they were and everything. And then um, she said, you know, you have to leave a record of what, who you are and what you did and what you where, what you accessed and so on. Yeah. And then she was about to leave for the day, something along these lines. And the archivist said, oh, uh, my dear, are you going to um, take a copy of everything or whatever it was? And, and my friend said, you know, I, I was just going to come back tomorrow. And she was like, you should really take a copy of everything. <laughs> And she was like, why are, are you saying that things could disappear between now and tomorrow? And she was like, yes, dear. <laughs> yeah, I did some research at Kew Gardens for my uh, my master's thesis. So the documents are down in multiple floors underground and you're up in the reading room. So first of all, you need a letter of permission to get in and then you look up the documents in a catalog. I'm sure it's all on, you know, computerized now, but you, you look up the documents you want and you write a request form, which you then hand to the archive, you know, clerks or administrators, and they go down or they send someone down into the basements to bring up the documents you asked for. So I'm guessing that that was a sympathetic <laughs> person who realized, okay, what you're looking at is considered sensitive. So that was actually very nice to tell her to take copies while you can. There's a story in tw from 2017 in The Guardian. Why do archive files on Britain's colonial past keep going missing? <laughs> Around a thousand files have disappeared while on loan to the government. This sort of accident is happening too often for comfort. Well, you've got to wonder what could possibly be in them that makes them look worse than what we, what already, we already know, know. right? Yeah. And this and is yet... 1897. It's over well, a yeah, I mean... Like anybody involved is long dead, but who knows? Maybe some of their descendants don't want to be embarrassed. When we talk about um, when we talk about World War Two, there's a lot of whole lot of burned doc burned documents there too. Yeah, yeah, World War Two as well. So the British had trouble uh, conquering the Igbos, Igbo land, 
mainly because there was, you know, no central political organization. So burning several villages is not going to bring the king to the bargaining table. Uh, you know, you're going to have to pretty much go and, and take control of everything directly. So the English, in the name of liberating the Igbos, uh, launched the Anglo-Arrow War, 1901-1902. During which they conquered villages, usually by burning the houses and crops. Uh, it was just, as I say, difficult for them to maintain control, central control over the Igbo. So they had to go through a number of annual pacification missions to convince the locals of British supremacy. In 1900, they also began a campaign against the Sokoto Caliphate. They created the Protectorate of Northern Nigeria. So under the terms of the Berlin Conference, the British are you know, stamping their claim to Northern Nigeria, but that's going to bring them into conflict with the Sokoto Caliphate. So under the direction of uh, Colonel Lugard, who is now High Commissioner, uh, the British captured Kano in 1903, fought battles sporadically through the following years into 1906. Lugard was very slow to describe these excursions, that's how they referred to excursions, to the colonial office. Uh, apparently the colonial office had not been told of his preparations to attack Kano. They learned about it from the newspapers <laughs> and that obviously makes them look foolish. So. They, they don't want to look uh, weak. They don't want it to look like Lugard is out of control. So they approved the expedition uh, two days after it began. So basically what you have is Lugard deciding where and when he's going to attack, destroy, burn, you know, and kill. And the British government retroactively approving his actions because, you know, they're not placed to stop him or the, or... They, they approve after the fact. So uh, Sidney Haldane and Lord Olivier commented in 1906, if the millions of people in Nigeria who do not want us there once get the notion that our people can be killed with impunity, they will not be slow to attempt it. So in order to prevent Nigerians from killing us, we have to kill them first. I think that's a fair summary that's just genocidal <laughs> just yeah yeah okay new governor in 1908 governor walter edgerton his agenda pacify the country establish settled government in the newly won districts improve and extend native footpaths throughout the country construct properly graded roads in the more populated districts clear the numerous rivers in the country and make them suitable for launch and canoe traffic and finally extend the railways so that sounds like a lot of work doesn't it and you can imagine who's going to be doing it so they uh, conscripted labor it was referred to as political labor so we've suppressed the slave trade but that's, now we're that's a new that's a new one don't can't say i've ever heard of political labor before 
that's a pretty cool euphemism. So mm. the uh, village heads were f were paid 10 shillings for conscripting workers, and they were fined 50 pounds if they failed to supply them. Individual people could be fined or jailed for refusing to, to comply with the uh, work order. So this was a temporary absence for Lugard. He went off to be governor of, of Hong Kong for six years, and then he returned as governor of Nigeria, and he wanted it uh, classified as a single colony under a governor with complete power. So basically, he wanted to be absolute ruler of Nigeria. He and wants the, to be Cromer. He wants to be the Cromer of Nigeria, basically. I Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if he was looking at that as a, a role model. So here's the colonial office reaction. Uh, Sir Frederick Lugard's proposal contemplates a state which is a, which is impossible to classify. It is not a unitary state with local government areas, but with one central executive and one legislature. It is not a federal state with federal executive, legislature, and finances. It is not a personal union of separate colonies under the same governor, like the Windward Islands. If adopted, his proposals can hardly be a permanent solution. And I gather that Sir Frederick only regards them as temporary. With one man in practical control of the executive and legislative organs of all the parts, the machine may work passably for sufficient time. <laughs> so they, they recognize he's asking for, you know, absolute Death. power. Death. And, Death. and they're kind of hoping that it would be temporary nobody here nobody is an advocate of democracy at this time none no. of the european powers there's no such thing but it is funny that you know they sort of say despotism might be the best uh, option here you know <laughs> might be the most efficient uh, option yeah yeah great britain the glory of liberals constitutional government parliamentary democracy well with one man in practical control of all the parts. Lucard is really, really quite important, not just for what he did in the places where he, uh, you know, destroyed and administered, but also as a, uh, what, a, a colonial thinker. He certainly had a lot yeah, of influence. Theorist. theorist or yeah. So he organized two administrations, colonial and native. Each had its own separate treasury. The native administration couldn't actually spend their half of the budget uh, that was planned by the British. So the native administration was responsible for police, hospitals, public works, and local courts. And so like a provincial provincial government in Canada. Pretty much. Hmm? Pretty much. Hmm. With a budget that was planned for them so you can't actually, you know, mm -hmm. do anything. The colonial civil service used uh, intermediaries same way the, the, the Royal Niger Company had, uh, in a, in quotes, expanded role, which included diplomacy, propaganda, and espionage. <laughs> 1916, Lugard formed the Nigerian Council, a consulting body. So he appointed six traditional rulers, the Sultan of Sokoto, the Emir of Kano, the King of Benin, uh, to represent all parts of the colony. And it would allow them to express opinions that could instruct the governor general. So it looks like 
I am consulting with the local rulers. But in practice, Lugard used the annual sessions to inform the traditional rulers of British policy. Their job was to listen and to assent. In the northern region of Nigeria, Lugard was uh, careful with Islam. He avoided any appearance of uh, you know, challenging traditional values or, or uh, fear of, of great changes that might incite re resistance. And that's why he preferred to rule through you know, the, uh, the Sultan and the Emir and so on and, and let them maintain the status quo as much as possible. Christian missionaries were barred from northern Nigeria. By order of Lugard. By order of Lugard. And uh, education in those areas was A, limited, and B, harmonized with Islamic institutions. And for some reason, Lugard preferred the north. He actually wanted to move the capital from Lagos to Kaduna. I don't know who talked him out of it or whether it just, you know, died of its own. I don't know. Lugard's also important as the author of, or the originator of the idea of the dual mandate. He wrote about it in 1922, and this became a handbook for all British administrators in tropical Africa. So, as I say, in addition to where he went and what he did, he had an enormous influence on future colonial administrators. So he found time in his book to blame the scramble for Africa on the French. <laughs> this whole scramble is all France's fault. Uh, because Look they, what you made me do. Yeah. Because they lost the Franco-Prussian War, the French were trying to you know, get their mojo back by taking over North and West Africa. And this ambition resulted in a scramble between France and Germany to which Britain was unwillingly compelled to participate in. Now, this guy had been in South Africa and in East Africa, and we mentioned the highlands of Kenya, and he found the terrain and the temperate weather there were convenient habitations for European settlers. By contrast, West Africa, the African tropics, held few incentives for white settlers. However, the region had abundant sources of raw materials and with its enormous population, um, you know, markets for manufactured goods. So the dual mandate, as Lugard explains it, is the administration of the colony and the economic benefits go to the metropolis. But it also involves the uplifting of the natives. So as governor, you have two mandates. You have to administer and reap the economic benefits for Britain, and you have to improve the, what, the standard of living or, or the condition. Let, let, improve let's... something. We're, we're doing something for these people. For yeah, sure. imp we're improving their condition, even if it doesn't materialize in a, you know, longer in lifespan lifetime, or, uh, or yeah. you know, living conditions. You know. So his three principles were decentralization, continuity, and cooperation. So keep the region separate, rule indirectly, use the native chiefs, use the king, use the emir, have him make the announcement of the new policy or of you know, the continuation, 
Continuity, he said, was vital because Africans were reluctant to trust foreigners. Effective British officers should retain their posts without undue interruptions. So basically, Lugard is campaigning to be left as governor of Nigeria for a long time because, you know, Africans don't like change and they like dealing with the same people. Continuity. He talked about education, uh, and it's really interesting here, his approach. The education of future native rulers. You want to prevent the emergence of an educated class that might challenge the authority of accepted rulers. And I find this is amazing. It is exactly the same approach as the Jesuits in the Counter-Reformation in the early 1500s, right? Educate the, the future ruler to be pro-British, to be pro-everything we want him to be, and, and that will ensure continuity and, you know, Lugard uh, says we failed in India in terms of education because we gave many of them a literary education. And that is bad for the colonized people because it undermines respect for authority. I, think I mean, this is fascinating. I mean, first it, of all, I guess we're talking about eight, 1922. So there's we, we, la- we left India in 1857. And so there's been a lot of stuff happening in the 1880s, and in particular 1919, which I assume was on um, Lugard's mind when he wrote that we failed in India. Yep. But it's it's also interesting, just you know, when I, when you think about like, I had a little rant about STEM, you know, STEM education and how everybody needs to learn STEM, and you know, it's got to be everything science and math and and so on, and yet. You know, when you read things like this, you see that colonial imperialists and colonialists didn't like uh, teaching ordinary people literary and historical and, you know, the equivalent of social science. And I wonder. In order to teach them the glories of Britain, they would teach them British history. Right. So when you teach, you know, uh, young Indians about the Magna Carta, when you teach them concepts like justice or liberty, well, they're going to make the mistake of thinking that that applies to them too. So teaching them our history is a bad idea because they might hold us to some of the principles that we claim. And and when we get to France, we see France doesn't, France thinks, has a different idea of colonialism, right? Yeah, they have a different approach to education, which we'll get to later on. Yeah. But Lugard says that teaching uh literary education uh, leads youth to despise their elders, adopt dangerous, radical attitudes. I'm guessing he means like equality or nationalism. Then there's another, another problem. For those who are being groomed to work for the British, so that civil service clerk, um, you know, the workers on the railroad, you know, low-level management positions, they're going to get frustrated when they hit the ceiling. It's not a glass ceiling because there's no question that it's yeah. there, right? You could you almost call it. it the wall. <laughs> so when they hit the wall and they they finally understand that they are not going to be promoted beyond that, then Lugard says unrealistic expectations were created. He says, 
in West Africa so far, the graduates of colonial schools are very unsatisfactory. They lack discipline. They lack respect for authority. So his recommendation is change the focus of education from intellectual achievement to what he calls the formation of character. So village schools can teach elementary hygiene, uh, colloquial English, trade skills, crafts, uh, plus moral and religious instruction. Higher schools, so regional schools, they're going to have to supply the large demand for clerks, bookkeepers, telegraphists, printers, railway workers, and of course, teachers for the village schools, although he notes that they don't need to be as highly qualified. And then at the highest level, you would have boarding schools with British headmasters, British school monitors, field sports, and the adoption of disciplinary punishments, which should fall more directly on the offender than fines. So that's mm. the stick. The carrot would Beatings. be prizes for good conduct, moral instruction based on the principles of natural religion, and an emphasis on personal conduct. But this is so interesting because, again, like when when conservatives in Western countries talk about how, you know, how we don't need these useless programs, you know, and all this arts and liberal arts and social science, and sociology or whatever it is, we don't need any of that stuff. What we need is the basics and, and engineering and, and technical education. It's like the, the colonial you have from the mouths of these colonialists that that's what they wanted to do to better control their colonies. It is exactly the same. Yeah. Exactly the same. It, yeah, I don't think it's a coincidence. Your your STEM argument is <laughs> something I've been aware of for several decades now. Yeah, by concentrating on science and, and math, which are apolitical, you yeah. you avoid, you know, feeding these radical ideas and opposition to authority and critics and things like that. Lugard's immediate successor uh, from 1919 to 25 uh, was Sir Hugh Clifford, uh, an aristocratic professional administrator with liberal instincts, uh, who had won recognition for his enlightened governorship of the Gold Coast from 1912 to 19. And apparently the two men had diametrically opposed attitudes or approaches to colonial development. So unlike Lugard, Clifford said that colonial government had the responsibility to introduce the benefits of Western experience as quickly as practical. He was aware that, you know, the Northern Nigeria, the Muslim North would, you know, present problems, but he had progress for, or he had hopes, I'm sorry, for the, for progress along the lines which he laid down in southern Nigeria. He anticipated a general emancipation leading to a more representative form of government. Economic development, encouraging enterprise, 
by uh, Southerners who, who moved to the North, while gradually restricting European participation in capital-intensive activity. So he's, he's planning on handing over the economy and eventually the direction of the government to the inhabitants of the country. What an odd fellow. He was uh, uneasy with the amount of latitude being allowed to traditional rulers under indirect rule. So he opposed any further extension of the uh, authority, the judicial authority uh, held by the northern emirs. He said he did not consider that their past traditions and their present backward cultural conditions afford to any such experiment a reasonable chance of success. In the south, he saw the possibility of building an elite educated in schools modeled on uh, European methods and, and numerous uh, children of the elites attending high-ranking colleges in Britain. And these, these schools would teach the basic principles that would and should regulate character and conduct. The colonial office made a decision. Given the choice between Clifford's approach and Lugard's approach, they went with both. <laughs> so in the South, they allowed Clifford to make some changes, but they stopped him from making any alteration to the procedures in the North. Uh, A.J. Harding, the director of Nigerian affairs at the colonial office, defined the official position of the British government in support of indirect rule when he said, direct government by impartial and honest men of alien race never yet satisfied a nation long. And under such form of government, as wealth and education increase, so do political discontent and sedition. Sounds like a Lugardian, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I'd say. So when he when he says alien race, he means himself in that case. Yeah, us. He's saying he's saying they they won't accept us even though we're better at it than them. Not directly. We have to do it indirectly. Right. Um so, you know, just to bring us down to I guess almost independence, we can talk a little bit about the business arrangements. Um thanks to Rodney again. Um, so there's a whole bunch of business <laughs> being done. Um, so the United Africa Company was the British colonial trading company, and it was a subsidiary of Unilever. Uh, Unilever also controlled the Compagnie du Niger Francais, the Compagnie Francaise de, de la Côte d'Ivoire, SCKM in Chad, Nosoco in Senegal, NSCA in Portuguese Guinea, and John Walken and Co. in Dahomey. Um, there's also other big capitalists, uh, John Holt in Nigeria, um, the East African firm on the East Africa firms. Uh, there were all these companies, but we uh, we've we've talked about East Africa. But let, let's continue um, on the West. The people I of I didn't know oh, you, Unilever was that old. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, and it's somebody Leverhulme, Lord Leverhulme. So the lever is not a physical lever; it's somebody's name. It, if you're not aware of who Unilever is, <laughs> they make um, food, 
ice cream, vitamins, uh, tea, coffee, breakfast cereal, cleaning agents, water and air purifiers, pet food, toothpaste, beauty products. They're the largest producer of soap in the world. And they own over 400 brands. In 2020, they made 51 billion euros. <laughs> and we'll see them again in Congo, by the way, because they're pretty big in Congo. Too. They also own uh, Dove, the soap, uh, Persil, uh, Hellman's, mayonnaise, Nor, Lipton, Lifebuoy, Sunlight. Wow. And they, and they go back <laughs> that far. This is cool. Um, so again, Rodney, the people of Ghana and Nigeria met the United Africa company everywhere they turned. It controlled wholesale and retail trade, owned butter factories, sawmills, soap factories, singlet factories, cold storage plants, engineering and motor repair shops, tugs, coastal boats. Some of those businesses directly exploited African wage labor. Well, in one way or another, all operations skim the cream produced by peasant efforts in the cash crop sector. Um, before the First World War, the most important individual in the whole of British West Africa was Sir Alfred Jones, chairman of Elder Dempster Lines, chairman of the Bank of West Africa, and president of the British Cotton Growing Association. Um, the Niger Company uh, was like the, or the Niger Company, I guess it's the English, uh, like the, a lot like the Société Générale of Belgium in the Congo when we get back to them. Uh, Rodney again, when when Lever Brothers took over the Niger, Niger Company in 1929, they became heirs to one of the most notorious exploiters of 19th century Africa. The Niger Company was a chartered company with full governmental and police powers during the years 1885 to 1897. In that period, the company exploited Nigerians ruthlessly. I'd say they also uh, made war upon them fairly constantly. Mm -hmm. uh, furthermore, the Niger Company was itself a monopoly that bought up smaller firms tracing their capital directly to slave trading. Similarly, when the UAC, the United Africa Company, was born of the merger with the Eastern and African Trading Company, it was associated with some more capital that grew from a family tree rooted in the European slave trade. Example, Cadbury and Fry. Cadbury's? <laughs> Ring any bells? Uh, the two foremost English manufacturers of cocoa and chocolate were buyers on the West African coast, while in East Africa, the tea manufacturing concern of Brook Bond grew and exported tea. Many of the Marseille, Bordeaux, and Liverpool trading companies were also engaged in manufacturing items such as soap and margarine in their home territories. This applied fully to the United Africa Company, while the powerful Les Yeux Group, processing oils and fats in France, had commercial buyers in Africa. However, it is possible to separate maybe he meant it's not possible, to separate the trading operations from the industrial ones. The latter represented the final stage in the long process of exploiting the labor of African peasants, in some ways the most damaging stage. So now in, we could get to the 30s. Um, <laughs> there's the so-called cocoa holdup of 1937, the Gold Coast cocoa holdup. For several months, Cocoa farmers refused to sell their crop unless the price was raised. 
A West African Cocoa Control Board was set up in 1938, but the British government used this to hide the private capitalists and to allow them to continue making their exorbitant profits. In theory, a marketing board was supposed to pay the peasant a reasonable price for his crop. The board sold the crop overseas and kept a surplus for the improvement of agriculture and paying the peasants a stable price. In practice, the boards paid peasants a low fixed rate during many years when the world prices were rising. None of the benefits went to Africans, but rather to the British government itself and private companies. Um, and guess who the chairman of the Cocoa Board was? Jo- John Cadbury. Oh, so the board sold to the U.S. at high prices. Uh, the British took all the profits. And then um, when we talk about World War II, we can get back to the way the reverse lend-lease worked. Um, tin and Mar- Malaya were important in this context of war loans being paid in goods from the colonies. So the British borrow money from the Americans and pay the Americans back in um, goods from their colonies, from, from Africa, Malaya. Africa supplied mineral and agricultural products. Cocoa was third as a dollar earner after tin and rubber. In 1947, West African cocoa brought over $100 million to the British dollar balance. Uh, besides having a virtual monopoly on the production of diamonds, South Africa was also able to sell to the United States and earn dollars for Britain. So it's a whole, it's quite a world system that they uh, that they built. And West Africa was a big deal. Um, next time, I'm going to talk about just Benin because there's a fantastic new book by a museum curator uh, who wrote a book called uh, The Brutish Museums. And it's it's a case study of the Benin bronzes and the sack of Benin, but uh, lots of um, lots of great stuff about colonialism, West Africa in general in there. Any 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 other conclusions do you have, Dave? Um, I'm looking forward to it.